Well, this week you have a chance to sign up for a group. And I hope you, you make the most of it because I think in terms of integrating into the life of a big church, joining a small group is pretty key, don't you? It certainly was for Liz and I. We came about 18 months ago and although we had family here, we still felt, wow, a bit overwhelmed coming in, not knowing many people. It can be a bit scary, really, but once you start to get into a group, and the other thing is, once you start serving, there's all sorts of ways you can serve in the life of the church, but it's actually really key to help you as well to settle in and to get to know people, feel like you really belong. So uh, that's our experience anyway, and I trust that uh, many of you will join groups. We uh, enjoy life group uh, together and they're just like family now and uh, it's just wonderful so go for it this week okay so um, this week I found myself daydreaming daydreaming and I'm told that there are three types of daydream the one is a positive constructive daydream the second is a, a guilt or discontent day, daydream and the third is just a poor attention daydream. So you've got to decide uh, what category my daydream comes into when I tell you what it was. I had a daydream that I saw the Apostle Paul on the latest series of The Apprentice. <laughs> and the director was uh, wanting him to sell himself, to boast himself up before Sir Alan Sugar. And he was saying, come on, Paul, we've got probably about six and a half million viewers uh, tonight, and I want you to really lay it on thick. Tell them how good you are. Tell them what a good guy you are. Big yourself up, your theological qualifications, your amazing adventures, the miracles, the healings, the converts you've won, the churches you've planted, the provinces in the Roman Empire you've plundered, the times you were almost killed. Paul, you've got such a great story, come on now. Boast a bit. We want you to boast a bit. That's what this program's all about. Boast yourself up. You know, come on, show, show up these other guys as dummies. It can't be that difficult, can it, on The Apprentice? Those of you who watch it will know what I mean. And in my daydream, in my daydream, the camera turned to the Apostle Paul and the nation held its breath, waiting for his big pitch. And he said, Shalom. My name is Paul, grace to you and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. My life before I came to know Jesus was actually pretty rubbish, actually. I look at it now and it's all just rubbish. I realize, actually, I'm about the chief of sinners. But, you know, I want to tell you about Jesus today. I want to tell you about how he came into the world and he died for people like me, sinners like me. Actually, I haven't got much to boast about except Jesus. And in my daydream, Sir Alan Sugar pointed at Paul and he said, you're fired. <laughs> exactly. Doesn't go down well. This morning, we're in Galatians chapter 6. I'm going to focus on verse 14 which says this, as for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, we invite you now 
to do what you love doing best and what you're really good at doing, and that is shining the light on Jesus, illuminate Jesus, highlight Jesus, show us more of his beauty, more of his wonder, more of his love, more of the meaning of the cross. Holy Spirit, we invite you to do that. You've been active this morning already, very active, and we invite you to keep on working now as we listen to the word of God. Amen. As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're concluding our series in Galatians this morning. It's my privilege to finish it off. And uh, during the, the letter, we've seen that the apostles crossed swords with a group of false teachers in Galatia who've been telling the believers there that they must not only believe in Jesus, but they've got to obey Jewish law. And for men, that meant getting circumcised in their flesh. And Paul has been saying, sometimes in very strong language indeed, that if they go along with that, basically they're saying that the death of Jesus was insufficient. That Jesus' death was not sufficient to save them. That you've somehow got to add other things to the death of Jesus. No, 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 says Paul. The cross of Christ alone is what saves. So, up to this point in the letter, Paul has actually been dictating the letter to a, to a scribe. But now, he takes up the pen and he writes this final paragraph in his own hand. Verse 11, notice what large letters I use as I write these closing words in my own handwriting. Those who are trying to force you to be circumcised want to look good to others. They don't want to be persecuted for teaching that the cross of Christ alone can save. And even those who advocate circumcision don't keep the whole law themselves. They only want you to be circumcised so that they can boast about it and claim you as their disciples. As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified, and the world's interest in me has also died. It doesn't matter whether we've been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we've been transformed into a new creation. May God's peace and mercy be upon you, be upon all who live by this principle. They are the new people of God. From now on, don't let anyone trouble me with these things, for I bear on my body the scars that show I belong to Jesus. Now, the word for scars there is stigmata, and the word stigmata was used to describe a brand applied to cattle or applied to a slave as a mark of ownership, burned into their flesh. And Paul is saying, it's not circumcision that marks out those who are truly gods. My marks are the marks that persecutors have put on me because of my preaching the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Verse 18, dear brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Okay, well, in 1857, during excavations, uh, on the Palatine Hill in, in Rome, a house with a history was unearthed. It, it, it had belonged at one time to the 
notorious emperor Caligula, but after his assassination, it became a boarding school for imperial page boys. And in one room, scratched into the plaster, archaeologists discovered a fascinating piece of graffiti dating back to the first century. And it tells us what the average Roman thought of the message of the cross. And here it is. This, my friends, is a brutal caricature. The human figure on the cross with a donkey head is Jesus. And the words read, Alexaminos worships his God. So the graffiti is mocking a Christian, maybe even one of the imperial page boys, who knows, and telling us or telling others that his worship of Jesus is absurd. The figure on the cross, the one worshipping, are both fools. And this morning we are looking at words written in the same century, round about the same time, standing in stark contrast. As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is boasting about the very thing that the graffiti is mocking, the death of Jesus. And the word translated boast in the text means to glory in, to revel in, to rejoice in, to live for. So Paul is saying, I glory in the cross. I revel in the cross. I rejoice in the cross. I live for the cross. The very opposite of that mockery in that, in that graffiti. John Stott, in his superb book, The Cross of Christ, comments, Paul's whole world was in orbit round the cross. I love that phrase. His whole world was in orbit round the cross. It filled his vision, illuminated his life, warmed his spirit. It meant more to him than anything else. I find that challenging. <laughs> in terms of my own view of the cross. But of course, glorying in the cross in the first century went down well with nobody. So the historian Tom Holland says, no death was more excruciating, more contemptible than crucifixion. Such a fate, Roman intellectuals agreed, was the worst imaginable. The cross was a terrible torture instrument and the idea of a god dying on a cross was ludicrous because well the gods that the Romans worshipped were immortal so what, what's a god doing dying on a cross the whole thing was utterly utterly ludicrous to the Romans and it wasn't just the Romans to the rational Greek mind the message of the cross was just appalling nonsense do you know it was actually a breach of etiquette to even mention crucifixion in polite Greek society. And what about the Jews? Well, Paul's fellow Jews, to them, the cross was just scandalous. And just over 100 years before Paul, the Hasmonean king, um, Alexander Janus, had crucified 800 Jewish men, mostly Pharisees, right in the center of Jerusalem. And that had fixed in the Jewish mind the horror, the horror of crucifixion. So all of this, Roman, Greek, Jewish perspective, 
The result had been, says Paul, that the false teachers in Galatia had downgraded the message of the cross. They knew it was going to get them in hot water. They knew it would be unpopular, and so they focused elsewhere. And now they were stressing uh, rules and regulations. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the cross. I'm not ashamed of the cross. It's the, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. It's the dynamite of God. There's dynamite in this message. However men may mock it, there is dynamite. It transforms people's lives. And in verse 11, it can almost be disguised. He underlines this. Notice what large letters I use as I write these closing words in my own handwriting. You know, I think he's doing that not just to authenticate the letter in his own handwriting, but to emphasize what he's saying in this last paragraph. Rather like sending a text message in capital letters. I'm sure some of you do that from time to time. And Bible translator J.B. Phillips adds a footnote to his translation of this verse. And he says, according to centuries-old Eastern usage, this could easily mean, notice how heavily I've underlined these words to you. So in the final paragraph, he is heavily underlining the message of the cross. As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The message that the majority regarded as obnoxious or shameful, well, it's Paul's pride and joy, central to the gospel he preaches. And also, I don't know whether you've noticed it, but it's actually central and fundamental to the whole of this letter that he's written to the Galatians. And right throughout the letter, there are references to what happened on the cross. And so right at the beginning, in chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, in his greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So right at the very beginning, he's saying, look, the death of Jesus isn't some tragic twist in, in the story. It's absolutely according to God's will, entered into voluntarily by Jesus, and it had a clear purpose. It was for our sins, our sins. Now, a lot of people might say, well, sins, a, f a few misdemeanors, what's all the fuss about? But actually, the Bible says... Sin is more than a few misdemeanors. Sin is a terrible disease of the soul that afflicts the whole of humanity. It alienates us from God. It destroys, it deludes, it enslaves. It's addictive. It's deceptive. It presents lies as truth and truth as lies. Have you noticed that? It destroys relationships. It's self-centered. And so the Bible says, hey, we were made to know God, to love him, to have an intimate relationship with him. And sin, well, we are now slaves to its downward pull. And Jesus came for our sins to deal with this fundamental problem in the human race. And in chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, he, he refers again to the cross and he talks about the curse of the cross. Christ became a curse for us, he says. For it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus went to the cross knowing he'd be mocked, he'd be reviled, 
and also that he'd be judged as being cursed by God himself. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that. I'm going to glory in that because the curse was on me. I was due judgment and Jesus took it for me. He took the curse for me. He did it voluntarily. He died in my place. He was my substitute. In the early years of our marriage, Liz and I met an anthropologist called Richard Dugdale. And he had done his doctorate research in Colombia in the Choco rainforest, which is basically on the remote Pacific coast. And while he was there, he'd come across a, a primitive animist tribe called the Embora. And they had very little contact with the outside world. And a few years later, he was now married, he returned with his wife to the rainforest to share the gospel with this, this tribe. And this, they labored for quite a long time without any kind of result, any kind of response. But then one Easter, they decided to put on a passion play. And a young teenager called Machuco volunteered to play Jesus. And he was strapped to a cross and raised in the middle of the village and stayed there for some quite considerable time so that the villagers could gather around and ask questions and talk together and try to come to terms with what this was all about. But something was happening to Machuco as he hung on the cross. And as he hung on the cross, he began to understand. Something began to open up to him. He began to realize what he'd been taught about sin, about his need for a savior, about the love of God, about what Jesus had done by coming and dying on the cross, that actually it was for him. He had died in his place. And there on the cross, Machuco gave his life to the Lord Jesus, the first in the village to do so. I think Machuco would have identified with another verse in Galatians, Galatians 2.20, where Paul writes, I've been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, ego, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul is saying, our old sinful self died with Christ and we were raised with Christ to a new life. And just like in a tyranny, when you're living in a, in a terrible tyr tyrannical regime, when you die, the tyrant's got no power over you anymore. So we now, having died with Christ, are no longer under the tyranny of sin. He has no control over us. Satan, sin, no control over us. We are free men and women. And we have a new master, one who loved us enough to die for us on the cross. So Paul can say, far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which, he says, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Again, I like Philip's translation here. The world is a dead thing to me, and I'm a dead man to the world. You know, the prizes that life has to offer without Jesus, when we have died with Christ, and he is now Lord of our lives, the prizes that life offers without Jesus lose all their glamour. 
the wealth, the prestige, the possessions, the power, the advancement, the praise of others, they all lose their glitter, their glamour, because suddenly Jesus becomes all that we need, and that grows. It doesn't it doesn't all flourish in a minute, but it grows and it grows and the desires to please him and new desires, new passions in our lives. All because he died on the cross and we now have died with him. Now, Paul, Paul is no fool. And again, in Galatians chapter 5, he has said that the... The cross is an offense to people. He acknowledges that. He uses the word offense, which means scandalon. It's the word scandalon, a scandal or a stumbling block. He knew that for Romans, for Greeks, for Jews, the message of the cross was actually offensive. And it still is, folks. It's still offensive today. To the rational mind, it doesn't make any sense. Professor A.J. Eyre was once an Oxford philosopher. He scorned. Christianity. He thought it was the worst of all religions. He scorned the idea of everyone a sinner and he scorned the idea of anybody being able to die 2,000 years ago for anybody today. He said, and I quote, that it was intellectually contemptible and morally outrageous. And Paul knew all about that. He understood that. He said that is the offense of the gospel. That's how it, people react to it. The message of the cross is offensive to the rational mind. And no wonder. And this is the reason why it's offensive. This is the reason. Because the, the cross, the message of the cross, is the supreme expression of God's upside-down kingdom. God's upside-down kingdom. And Isaiah 55 could be the mission statement for the way God does things. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Welcome to God's upside-down kingdom. God loves to turn the world's wisdom on its head, and the cross is the supreme expression of that. And of course, the great statement of that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block and offense to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, this is what the great 16th century Reformation pioneer Martin Luther called God's left-handed power. That's what he called it. You know, in the Bible, there's lots about God's right hand of power. You'll see that again and again. It's used of the act of creation. It's used of the deluge in Noah's day. It's used of the plagues in Egypt. It's used of the parting of the Red Sea. God's right hand of power. What's not to like about God's right hand of power? We love to see God's right hand of power. Right-handed power looks like power. But left-handed power doesn't look like power at all. It looks like weakness. In fact, Martin Luther called it paradoxical power. 
In other words, power made perfect in weakness. And we see this most perfectly displayed in the deep, dark, left-handed mystery of the cross. Everything about the cross cries out failure, defeat. The Palatine caricature actually just echoed the mockery that went on around the cross. They were saying, he said he was the son of God. He said he was the Messiah. And there he is up on the cross. Come on down. Come down miraculously. Give us something right-handed and we'll believe in you. But it was through this bleeding, dying, weak figure on the cross that your salvation and my salvation was accomplished. My friends, that's left-handed power. That is power made perfect in weakness. And you might well ask, what's this all about? God, why, why couldn't you do it differently? Wouldn't it have been much simpler to have used straightforward, impressive, right-handed power? And the answer, of course, is because God has always been looking for a people of faith. He's always wanted people to trust him, to trust his word, even when they don't understand it all, even when it's a bit confusing, even when other people say it's stupid. No, God said it. God's promised it. Believe it. Trust him. He's always been looking for a people of faith. And we see that right through the letters of the Galatians from Abraham's example, promised to form a family of people of, of faith. The saving power of the cross is only accessed by faith. Now, of course, because the message of the cross is so upside down, it provokes a reaction. It isn't just sometimes mockery. It's actually worse than mockery. It's severe persecution. Paul laid down his life. He was executed because he insisted on preaching the cross of Christ. And many others have done the same. Do you know that the Center for the Study of global Christianity estimates that since Jesus walked this earth, 70 million believers have been martyred. 70 million. And wait for it, 35 million, half of that number, in the 20th century. And one of them was a Chinese believer called Ni To Sheng, a renowned believer who preferred the name Watchman Ni. And some of you will have read his books. Over a period of 30 years, he planted churches throughout China, and he was a brilliant Bible teacher. But in 1949, when the communists came to power, they targeted believers, especially leaders. And they made a special target of Watchman Nee because he was so influential. And in 1952, he was uh, tried. He was sentenced to 15 years imprisonment with reform. Their aim was to re-educate him. They wanted to wash his mind out of all this Christian stuff. They wanted to actually get rid of that stuff, and so 15 years. And so Nee spent all that time in prison. He was due for release in 67, but he was actually detained, and he died in 1972. Now, here's the thing. 20 years in prison, nobody knew anything about how he got on. Nobody knew how he'd done. Did he, did he push through with his faith, or... Were they successful? You know, did they clear his mind out of Jesus? Nobody knew. 20 years, no news at all of this great man of God. 
But after his death, his grandniece was allowed to visit the prison where he had died, and she learned that he left a piece of paper under his pillow. And she said later, and I quote, when the officer of the labor farm showed us this paper, I prayed that the Lord would let me quickly remember it by heart. And Nee had written uh, several lines, she says in very big letters, in a shaky hand, and this is what he written. Christ is the Son of God who died for the redemption of sinners and was resurrected after three days. This is the greatest truth in the universe. I die because of my belief in Christ. Signed, Watchman Nee. As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the cross is central to the Christian gospel. Without it, we've got no good news. Without it, we've got no power. If you forget the gospel of Christ on the cross, if you try to present it in any context without the cross, your message has lost all its power. Because the dunamis, the dynamite, is located right at the heart in the message of the cross, which is foolishness, which is obnoxious to the rational mind. John Piper, great theologian, pastor, writes this. I like this quote. Something happened, he says. Something happened in the death of Jesus that is so stupendous that it now serves as the basis for the acquittal of millions and millions of sinners who trust Christ. Something happened. That's about it, isn't it? That's about the limit of our understanding of the depths of the mystery of the cross, the depths of the profound mystery that we will spend eternity exploring and enjoying and benefiting from, the mystery that now should lead us to wonder and wonder to worship. And the great hymn writers have always captured it. Charles Wesley, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? And Isaac Watts, actually a wonderful hymn based on the text that we've been looking at this morning. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast Save in the death of Christ, my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. And then, of course, he ends the hymn with these wonderful words. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. It's all a cause for wonder. It's all a cause for worship and surrender. I began this morning with the Palatine caricature mocking Jesus, but I'll remind you of a vision in Revelation 5, which is very different. It's of Jesus raised and exalted and receiving the adulation of the redeemed and myriads and myriads of wonderful, powerful angels. And Jesus in the vision is no donkey. He's the lion and he's the lamb. The lion, right-handed power, 
the lamb, left-handed power, mighty and meek, awesome and bearing the wounds of sacrifice and every eye is fixed on him and every voice is lifted in praise and please note, don't miss, their song in heaven is a mighty version of Paul's glorying in the cross of Christ. Worthy is the Lamb. Let's all stand. Let's all stand. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. We lift our voices in praise to you. You are worthy. You alone are worthy. Oh, you alone are worthy. Hallelujah. We worship you. We worship you.